Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to Paul Highland, a freelance journalist who has just completed a PhD in modern and medieval languages at the University of Cambridge. In the course of our conversation we discuss his experience of moving from academia into football writing, the benefits and crossovers between the two and the ways in which literature can inform football. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. Next week we will be speaking to Benjamin Roberts about football in Northern Ireland and the experiences of writing a book. But before that, it's Paul Highland, academia, football writing and the place of literature. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Paul Highland, a freelance journalist who has just handed in a PhD in modern and medieval languages at the University of Cambridge. Paul, how are you doing? Doing really well. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. I begin every one of these episodes with the chance for my guests to situate themselves a little bit in the football media in particular. Obviously, you're coming at it from quite an interesting angle, similar angle to me. So tell us a little bit about about your background and how you ended up segueing into the football media. So I started out in the football media because I was pretty dissatisfied with academia. Um, so I sort of came into it through the back door, I guess, because I'd had a, a, an academic background where I'd done my uh, undergrad. I did Spanish and German for my undergrad. I did well at that. And I decided I'd stick about and do a master's and that went well too. And I thought, well, the natural next step, I guess, is, is to take this to a PhD. I enjoy research. Um, I enjoy the feeling of contributing something. And so I thought I'd push myself that, uh, that next step. And I was excited by that, but the problem was, um, I chose the wrong supervisor. Um, so th- my faculty had hired a very high profile member of staff, uh, and he had an academic CV the size of a book and he offered to be my PhD supervisor. And I thought, wow, yeah, Christ, what an opportunity to work with someone like him. Um, the issue was that he was ultimately never there. He didn't read my work and basically I, I spent a year and I hadn't learned anything. And when my research hit a snag, um, it was the very first time that I really had to think that there was a real possibility that academia might not work out, that there might not be uh, a PhD or an academic career on the horizon. And I thought, well, I really need to make sure that there's something that I can leave here with that I can fall into and something that I enjoy, something that I think I'll be good at. And so while all of that was going on with my PhD, I started to explore sports journalism as a career on the side. Let's start off talking about your experiences working in student media in particular, because I know you worked for a couple of the main papers that the students run in Cambridge. Tell us a little bit about about those experiences and the usefulness of it and what what you learned. Um, So I started off really small, as I guess all of us did. Um, I started out as a columnist, basically, at the Cambridge Student Newspaper um, back in early 2015. Um, and I remember a couple of the, the things I was, I was asked to do. I was asked to write about whether, um, AFCON would impact on the title race between Chelsea and Man City. I think I also wrote something about whether Tim Sherwood had doomed Aston Villa to relegation. Um, <laughs> I was there as a columnist for uh, about six months. And, um, by the summer of 2015, the sports editor position at the Cambridge student was open. And so I decided, um, I decided that I'd go for it. I think looking back when I went into that position, I probably had a couple of delusions of grandeur, to be honest with you, because I, I was almost telling myself that I'd change the world or put the world to rights by writing about football. And 
obviously that was never going to happen, but you go in with those expectations on yourself that you're going to do something truly groundbreaking. And obviously that's, uh, that's not realistic. I think what I, I tried to do when I was at the Cambridge student was increase the ambition of the sports section. And I tried to steer us away from doing a lot of the stuff that I'd done on, say, AFCON and um, relegation uh, and things like that, to stuff that actually mattered. Because if you want to read about what it takes to keep Aston Villa in the Premier League, you're not going to come to me. You're not going to come to the Cambridge student newspaper. And so I tried to reposition the paper, um, or at least the section anyway, um, and change the direction, get us writing about stuff where we could make a clear contribution, stuff that we had to research and actually put intelligent thought into. And all right, some of it was quite preachy and probably alienated um, the readers that we had, quite a lot of them. But I think some of it was quite good as well. You know, we did investigative pieces on the World Cup in Qatar, what was going on over there with migrant deaths. We put stuff out on... Um, how the Travelling England fan base was a breeding ground for anti-EU sentiment, thought-provoking, quite engaging pieces. And that was something I was really, really proud of, that we'd started to rethink sport in terms of, well, what was, what was its cultural, what was its sociological impact, I suppose you could put it like that. But I think the thing I'm most proud of that we did at the Cambridge Student was, was raise the profile quite a lot. Um, and the section, I think, started to get noticed when I was there. And we got a lot of big interviews with big names in, in sports media and we had conversations very much like this one actually about how did they get into what they did um really challenged the media they worked in so we got interviews with people like dan rowan at the bbc graham hunter tim vickery uh we managed to add david squires as well when he was becoming famous and that was even more fun than you'd expect um and i was there for about a year before i ended up uh, eventually moving to varsity which was a rival publication uh in the summer 2016 um, and that's historically, I think, the bigger paper. And it built on a lot of what I'd done at the Cambridge Student. Um, we produced, again, a lot of very intelligent commentary. And what I also found was there was a lot more legwork. And so it gave me a, a kind of more rounded experience of being a sports journalist. So I got to go and report on the Vosti rugby at Twickenham, uh, brushed shoulders with the bourgeoisie at the boat races and what Lake reporting from there and that, that kind of thing. Um, and one thing I really noticed moving, taking a step up, if you like, from the Cambridge student to varsity, was how the opportunities there, the contacts there were a lot better than ones I was already used to. And suddenly I was finding it easier to get really big interviews and to get those noticed. Um, so one example was I actually managed to fly to Seville a couple of years ago because I got an interview with Monchi, who was at FC Sevilla when he was still there. And we'd been offered an exclusive through a contact that I'd made. And he was a fantastic interviewee. He had, he had all the time in the world for you. And um, I came back, I got that interview transcribed and I translated it. And it, for a short time, became our most read ever sport article. It was quoted all over the Spanish press. Marca picked it up, all of that. And I think that was the first time that I felt in some way that I'd arrived, um, where people could actually take me seriously as a journalist who was willing to do the miles and put in the legwork and not just what it can often feel like as a student journalist which is kind of like a glorified blogger i felt like there was actual journalism going on for the very first time so you, you've obviously learned a lot about the way that media works in general from from that experience yeah would you say that you would be able to port that sort of experience over quite well into a sort of regular beat job in in the national papers for example well i um i mean this is going to touch on, I think, stuff that we want to discuss later on. But I did manage to get some work experience at the Times um, back in March 2017. Thankfully, Varsity has great contacts and a lot of um, 
big names in the sports media used to work for Varsity. Um, and so I got in touch with Matt Dickinson uh, at the Times and he helped me get a work experience placement. Um, and I didn't actually find the transition too bad. I mean, some of it was donkey work because, you know, you're not a permanent employee. You're doing research for the journalists and looking up the odd stat. Um, but I did make some contributions and, you know, I got to actually write a report on the Europa League draw. Um, I managed to translate some quotes from Atletico Madrid because Diego Godin and Simeone were having a press conference on how they've just, just run Leicester in the Champions League. So I got to make a contribution through stuff, not only that I'd done on the journalistic side of things, but also on the academic side of things. And I got to put both of those into practice at the same time. Let's talk about the experience of doing a long period of academic work. It's funny listening to you talk because so much of your experience sort of is so applicable to my own experiences, mm-hmm. sort of feeling of getting fed up with academia, uh, having a bad supervisor, yeah, yeah. doing work in the student media. And one of the things that people have asked me has been what sort of impact did did doing academic work have on the way that you write? And um, I'm not entirely sure I've really given that as much thought as I should, but obviously academia is all about thinking about how you write, how you communicate, how you research. What would you say the benefits have, have been for you? I mean, obviously you've, you've always done academia and I suppose you wouldn't know what the, the counterfactual was, but what sort of thoughts would you have on that? There's quite a lot of crossover. I think more crossover than people tend to realise. Um, and both have transferable skills that impact on each other. So when you're writing a thesis, I mean, you're basically writing to persuade someone else of a point of view and the originality of your point of view. And also it's learning to write well, but I guess not too well. Um, and I actually noticed that when I, I mean, the further I got into my research and uh, the more my sports writing would improve. And I think the experience as well of having to write reports, opinion pieces, knowing that there was an audience and you know, seeing things commented on and shared on social media reminded me that people were actually reading the work. It actually helped me write in a way that took my reader more into account. And that was one of the things I was always really bad at and supervisors used to tell me off about when I was doing my master's and my PhD, that I write as if I'm the only person in the world who could possibly understand what I was talking about. And I don't take the reader into account. And so they sort of... I guess the sports writing really helped streamline my academic writing quite a lot. And in that sense, they really bounced off each other. But I think the the, the biggest um, impact on me was psychological. And the sports writing, in the sports journalism in general was a big relief. Because I think one of the things they don't tell you before you start a PhD is that I can be a really, really lonely, very isolating experience. You're the only person in the world working on the exact topic that you're specifically researching. And you'll be in... You know, spending hours in a library all day long in silence, just reading articles and journals and and writing up your findings, saying whether you agree, disagree, writing out your references. And then when you're done for the day, you can't really go back and tell anyone what you did because no one else is working in the same field, quite the same field as you. And that all feeds to feeds a sense that actually it's quite lonely. Um, And I guess also faculties aren't very good at bringing PhD students together either. And so it was very, very hard to to meet people as well. So when I started the sports journalism, what really helped me was was having somewhere to be. Because um, when I sort of fell out with my supervisor, and I started to doubt myself quite a lot whether I even would get a PhD. My mental health took a real tumble. And honestly, getting out and standing on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, watching a football match, writing up my thoughts, actually talking to people, taking interviews, that all helped. It helped me feel like I could actually engage with people and actually. When I wrote an article, it would go up the same day, it would go up the next day, and people would engage with it, they'd comment on it, and they'd, they'd, they'd share it. And for me, it was the complete opposite of this sort of four-year slog of writing a thesis that, you know, only about four people in the world will ever read. And 
the sense that you had those small successes um, that you, someone would read an article that you wrote across the course of a day and they'd like it. That's the kind of thing that over a long term keeps you going, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny you say that because I, I remember coaching the women's team for, for a few years and having you stood on the on the sidelines when I was doing that. And... Oh, that was you. <laughs> yeah, it was. God, I, I had never put a face to a name. I should have realised that was you. <laughs> it's funny. It's a small world, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it uh, I, remember, I remember you doing the coverage when we played at Barnet as well. At the Hive. Yeah, there you go. Small world. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between the academic environment and the media environment. One of the things that's frustrated me, I think, going from the academic environment to the media environment is I'm so used to uh, operating in a context where people are happy to say, I disagree with this, or this is what I think of of this. Uh, And it doesn't seem to be quite the same environment in the sports media from what I've seen. So I guess my question to you would be, do you think that an environment that allows for disagreement is necessarily a better one? I think one of the things I'd say is that academia doesn't necessarily enjoy disagreements as much as they say. Um, (laughs) I mean, academia, this is one of the things I was really disappointed to find when I I went into my PhD, because I've got to say, I I romanticised about it quite a lot, that it was this world where, you know, all, all opinions mattered, and it was all this kind of intellectual discourse and exchange. And actually, I found that when I, I really got into it, that it has hierarchies just like any other. And I remember my first major conference, um, which was a conference on narrative, which was a really exciting opportunity for me. Um, I was so disillusioned by how at plenary sessions and panel discussions, senior or world-renowned academics would not really have their views challenged because they were the ones in charge of grants and journals and job offers and who gets a professorship and so on. And then in my experience, it's usually the junior academics that tend to have to bear the brunt of most of the disagreement. Um one thing that I found in terms of disagreements on the academic side of things was that knowing that someone more senior than you disagrees um, is actually quite discouraging and it's something you're going to get quite a lot. Um, and I mean, there's one idea that went into my, the PhD that I handed in recently that my supervisor over the course of a year told me that he, he fundamentally disagreed with it. And I think it took guts to turn around and say, well, actually, it's going in because otherwise I'm, I'm making less of a contribution. Um so I think in academia, you've got to learn to live with, with that disagreement that it's not a threat or a sign that I've necessarily done something wrong, um, but rather a marker that I might be doing something a little bit original or challenging received ways of, of thinking. <clears throat> I think, to be honest, with sports journalism, I think sports journalism is probably a little bit better at the kind of disagreement that academia sells itself on. Um, and I think, you know, when I write a sports article, sometimes my best writing comes from seeing what others have said and thinking, actually, I don't think that argument quite works. Finding that I disagree and coming up with a, a new angle on um, on an established and, and well-talked-about issue. I think there's a joy in that and there's a sense in sports journalism that that kind of goes with the territory. And I guess journalism in general just might not necessarily have those hierarchies the way that academia does. Um, I think social media helps that a lot. Um, I mean, you've got this... I mean, sports journalism can harness social media really well you, you share ideas you, you you feel like you're part of a discourse part of an exchange you feel like you're part of a conversation that, that's developing in real time and academia hasn't harnessed um social media in that way just yet even though it, it's really trying it's hard to uh hardest to um it's going to be really interesting to see how academia copes 
uh, with the kind of disagreement you get from people who know that they disagree with you, you know, even if even though they haven't read what you've had to say, which is a <laughs> thing I think is fortunate us we're all familiar with. <laughs> There's obviously bad sides to, to social media as well. Mm. Um, so how would you how would you respond? To, I think because one of the, I think when I talk about the this inability to disagree, I think a lot of it comes from this idea that a lot of the mainstream journalists sort of assume that that uh, context that you talked about there, where people will disagree with you without even having read the article mm-hmm. is it just a general ap- approach and so there can be a, a sense in which that's almost used as an excuse to to again not engage with with people disagreeing and another thing that i read as well i saw a thread the other day talking about younger journalists who aren't quite in the mainstream yet disagreeing with uh, with maybe the more accepted mainstream journalists and and they were questioning why you do that because these people are going to be offering you jobs in the future similar to the, what you were talking about with academia so i wondered wonder what your thoughts on that those two things would be i think on the social media side of things i remember i wrote an article um a few years ago about uh the liverpool ownership um who when they were renovating the main stand at liverpool they um took all the original seats these sort of old wooden things that had been there for 50 or 60 years and they chose to sell them back to the fans at a premium and i wrote an article for a liverpool fanzine where i said well i disagree with the fact that they've done this because they've only been here about 10 years the supporters i think have a right to feel like that's part of their community these owners haven't really had anything to do with this for a very long time and anyway i put this article out and on social media it was full of people who didn't bother reading the article and who just came out with this platitude well they own the club they can do what they like and i dealt pretty strongly with that counter argument in the article and if people are bothered to read it well i thought well maybe i'd be able to change your mind maybe we'd be able to actually discuss this i think you learn pretty quickly that uh you shouldn't engage with those people um i tried i did try to just encourage people to to actually read what i'd written and try to clarify what i'd said I find actually there comes a point when there's there's very little uh, there's very little motivation to try and en- engage to try and get people to actually uh yet yeah, to, to actually go and do that um because you just don't get anywhere um yeah. the analogy that I like to use is before social media we used to have conversations with our friends in pubs and cafes and whatever and there was an expectation you'd talk about the things that your friends were, were interested in and i think social media has almost made it acceptable for this to have this analogy where you can walk into a pub and have a conversation with someone on a random table and join in that conversation regardless of whether or not you are even interested in the topic and i think maybe that's what sort of happened in, in and, and so for me my personal rule on social media is always talk to those people who you would be at the table with in the first place and don't worry worry too much about the people outside that context obviously if people are dealing with you in good faith then i will interact with them but yeah that's my general my general rule yeah if i get the sense that someone's actually bothered to read what i've i've read sorry read what i've written and they've got an intelligent and reasonable counter argument then absolutely i'll engage and i'll I'll chat i think that it's important that you should be open to the sense that you're in a discourse but that's not possible i guess when um people as you say they're just wandering in and they're just mouthing off i suppose you could put it that way and uh um, talking about something that they they don't know anything about, and uh, sometimes it's difficult to separate those two. But yeah, that that's how I I I, um, I try to do it. Let's move on to start talking about some of your own work. Uh, you had a piece published in September in the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, a piece on Bourges and AFC Wimbledon, and the and well, the, I'll read the title. The title is "When Stadiums Disappear." I don't want to say his name wrongly. Is it Jorge? Uh, yeah, Jorge. Jorge Luis Borges, yep. AFC Wimbledon and the Meaning of Home in Football. Tell us a little, little bit about what the article is about. I found it fascinating. I found it fascinating because what you are doing is you are taking 
uh, a sort of literary approach to football and and that that doesn't get done a huge amount so so talk us through that article the reason i came upon the article first of all was i mean i've been writing my phd thesis on jorge luis borges in um in large part and one of the things that i'm really interested in that borges does is he he makes the argument that nothing is inherently meaningful and he argues that for something in order for anything to be meaningful we need to project outwardly onto it um and the world in and of itself doesn't actually mean that much. And in my thesis, I was looking at how Borges actually applies that to texts. The texts aren't inherently meaningful. Uh, and then showing how Borges asks us, where does the meaning in a text come from? Now, what led me towards writing this article was I was doing a little bit of reading around uh, Borges. Um, and I found that in 1967, he'd done something very similar um, by taking football as an example. Um he co-wrote a story in 1967 called Essay Est Percipi, which is Latin for to be is to be perceived. So immediately it's playing on all of those key Borges ideas um, that there's nothing that matters outside of the mind and so on. Anyway, I was reading this story and it's about a tourist who's wandering through Buenos Aires and he finds that River Plate Stadium, the Monumental, um, is nowhere to be seen. And he investigates a bit and he finds he meets a club official and uh, the club official basically confesses to him that football doesn't exist. Um, he says the whole thing is staged. Um, all of the player names are just pseudonyms. The results are preordained by the TV companies. Um, we even choreograph the goals. There's no such thing as football. And I read that and there was a kind of eureka moment um, because, as I was saying, it does an awful lot of what Borges does in his most most famous stuff. Um, talking about the inherent meaningfulness of a thing. And here he was saying the exact same thing, but using football as a device. And that was when I realized that there was a, a sort of contribution that I could make to a football discussion that based itself on my PhD research. Um, I think the idea behind the article was to say, well, all right, if we can extrapolate, as Borges did, from the idea that you know, a stadium being able to disappear because, you know, bricks and mortar are quite flimsy. If you knock it down, where is the football club? I think is the inherent question. I sort of put that question to the test um, by sort of looking at it through uh, the lens of modern football. So in other words, I was asking, well, the football is contingent on something that's as flimsy as the bricks and mortar of, say, a football stadium that can just be demolished in the blink of an eye. What does that tell us about the state of, of modern football where, where clubs are, are moving around all the time? And so what I settled on was the idea that this Borges story, and don't get me wrong, Borges hated football, and I don't <laughs> think he intended any of this. I think he once said, actually, that football's only popular because stupidity is popular. <laughs> so I've, I've got to confess that when I read Borges this way, I'm kind of reading in um, to something that he didn't intend, but it's still useful for us as, as people who are interested in football as a, as a cultural phenomenon. It lets us ask questions about what home in football means, and that explains the title, you know, the meaning of home in football. You know, whether a club is the same club when it moves home, to what extent it's a different club. And then I settled on, or I realised that we have very real examples. Um, I mean, you know, Arsenal moved down the road in, what, 2006? But we still call them Arsenal. And then there's the more extreme example that you've got this uh, move, and I put move in inverted commas, from uh, from Wimbledon up to Milton Keynes. And actually in the article, I, I use Borges um, to say that Arguing that Wimbledon moved to Milton Keynes is a sentence that just has no truth value in it. Um, and we need to readdress the way we actually talk about what happened when Wimbledon were replaced by Milton Keynes Dons. Um, because there's no possible way in which it could have been true. There was no possible crossover between those two clubs. There was a sudden disappearance of one club. With, and 
it was replaced by another club that had no spiritual connection whatsoever to the original home. And so I was using the Borca story to make the distinction between what happened in the case of, say, Wimbledon and Milton Keynes Dons, and also what's been going on with teams like Arsenal, Tottenham, uh, West Ham, who've obviously had a botched move uh, to Stratford recently. And looking at actually what are the different relationships between those clubs and their spiritual homes? Are they still the same club? And it was only in the case of uh, Wimbledon, uh, Milton Keynes, where I was able to say, well, actually, no, there is no crossover at all. Yeah, that's interesting that you should mention the fact that that Borges wasn't a fan of football and that you are going beyond Borges in, in some sense. So we're already touching on the the issue there of approaching football intellectually. What do you think the benefits of this of this are? Um, I think that, that there can be an assumption that when people intellectualise football, they're doing something that is unhelpful or even wrong. I think using Borges, it's just one way of doing it. Um and what I'm really careful of is not trying to tell people that I can solve all of football's problems by resorting to literature. I can't. But I think there are ways in which literature can be really can be a useful way to represent um, uh, phenomena that go on in football. And to mention the Borges article again, um, Borges suggested that football is meaningless because the bricks and mortar were, as I said, flimsy, that actually these things are very mobile. And one of the things that I did, and I think I'm looking at this the other way around, was say, well, actually, there is some possible meaningful content in a football club that isn't necessarily related to specific bricks and mortar. A spiritual connection to the home is enough. And so in that sense, I was I was actually using football to critique the literature. I think people are beginning um, to really understand that football is a mass cultural phenomenon. Um, it's political. It's, you know, a, a football match is a mass gathering of people in one place in one time, um, at one point in history. And knowing who those people are, knowing what football means to them, what's brought them to where they are can actually tell us a lot about the world. And there's really, really good stuff out there these days on what football can tell us, how football can help us to understand the world we live in a little bit more. And I don't know if you've read, um, Sid Lowe's book from four years ago, Fear and Loathing in La Liga. It's a fantastic read um, about how the Real Madrid-Barcelona rivalry is a microcosm of a lot of Spanish history and also a microcosm of a lot of the ignorance of Spanish history as well. Um, and you have people like Alex Bellos. Alex Bellos writes really well on Brazilian football and shows how this samba style, if you'll pardon the cliche, is a result or it's a product of socio-economic, socio-political circumstances. Um and then there's, uh, I'm actually at the moment reading through Tom Williams's book, Do You Speak Football? Um, that's, um, I'm only about 20 pages into it, but it's a really fascinating read because one of the things that it's, um, one of the things that impresses me so much about it is that it shows how a lot of the football in lexicon, um, is very strongly tied to the specific values of the, the country that uses the, the words. What I'm trying to get across with all of this is that I think people are beginning to realise that football can help us to understand the world a little better. Authors, I mean, people who write about football for a living, um, are really beginning to go down that road. But there must be an audience out there as well who are willing to read about that too. So I don't think that we are overly intellectualising it. I think the intellectual approach, whether it's literary, historical, sociological, linguistic, whatever it is, all of that's just one way of looking at it. Um, but I think that's a way that's just as valid as any other. You've mentioned a few people that you think uh, that you think are good doing it out there. Have you got, is there anyone else you wanted to mention in terms of the, the best examples of this? I've got to mention Jonathan Wilson as well. Um, 
Inverting the Pyramid is a bible of football tactics, and what's so interesting about it is that he shows how the development of football tactics are developed, uh, sorry, are connected to the development of world history and European history. Um, and it's written very much as a scholarly, well-researched, sourced historical investigation. Um, and he, he did a similar thing in Angels with Dirty Faces, his book on Argentinian, the history of Argentinian football. And it was so tightly bound together, the football, with the history of Argentina itself. And here's someone who I think really ties football together with history and shows how actually they can very strongly reflect each other at times. Let's move on to talk about literature in general as a, as a medium. I've had many conversations about this and I think it's sort of become a bit of a cliche to say why there's so few good football novels. I would add to that question, cliched as it may be, what, why does it tend to be that the ones that are the best examples, I think, of the genre do tend to be sort of semi-biographical. Um, so I'm thinking of Fever Pitch, which is a book that I, I think I enjoyed for for what it was. There's certain things that I don't like about it, but I would tend to read that as semi-biographical. Well, it is semi-biographical, obviously. Then B.S. Johnson's The Unfortunates, which I've only just finished reading. Again, that's, that's a book which is very much semi-biographical, and B.S. Johnson spends a lot of time in, in some of his other work talking about how he feels as though he can't write fiction proper in that sense. He's, he thinks that you've always got to tie it to some kind of uh, life experience on, on your own. Beyond that, I, I was struggling to think of any uh, examples. I'm sure you've got some more. Do you think this is a false problem? Do we, is, it, is it simply the case that we, we just fascinate on the good ones? What would your approach to this be in terms of literature as a medium to, to write about football in particular, but maybe sports in general? I think one of the things with uh, people who write literature about football is that they, they generally write it for people who experience it in the exact same way that they do. And I think, you know, you mentioned uh, Nick Hornby and Fever Pitch. I haven't actually read Fever Pitch, but I've heard that it's a really kind of cloying, um, very uh, dewy-eyed, romantic view of what it's like uh, to be an Arsenal fan. <laughs> uh, and a lot of people who sort of represent football that way, say Hornby, for example, I think what they're doing is is capturing, very often romanticizing a lot of the experience to people that kind of already know what it's like. And in that sense, I guess a lot of football literature is a closed shop. So it doesn't necessarily try to appeal to those of us who don't actually care about football very much. It doesn't recommend football as something that matters. And don't get me wrong, it has its place. I'm sure if I read Fever Pitch, I'd probably quite enjoy it. Or The Damned United, I'd probably really enjoy that too. Um, and there is, I think, a unique knack. There must, I mean, there is an obvious skill in, in bottling the emotional investment that we all put into our, our, our football teams. Um, but the most interesting representation of, of football that I've seen in literature so far was actually by someone who hated football. Um, who said the football, as I said before, was only popular because stupidity is popular. <laughs> and it strikes me that actually someone that could see football from a detached point of view, someone who wasn't necessarily invested in it was someone that actually wrote about it in a way that would actually appeal to the general population. Because instead of writing about what it's like to go to a football game, what it's like to care about one of the Buenos Aires teams, he took football on as a cultural phenomenon and tried to try to understand why does it matter to people or why should it matter to people and then argue, well, maybe it oughtn't to. And that's something that I think has a wider general appeal. Um, I think it appeals to me because I like to engage with that. But for people who don't like football, they get to engage with that as well. And so I think for football literature to really be taken seriously, I think it needs to broaden its appeal and maybe needs to start asking much bigger questions like Borges did, much much bigger questions than, oh, what's it like to support Arsenal? There needs to be some bigger mission statements, I think. And that's something that Borges achieved in a way that maybe Nick Hornby didn't. 
Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. Have you read any other examples of football or, or even sports literature that you would you would mention at this point? Yeah, so uh, there is um, quite a famous, well, semi-famous short story um, by a guy called Osvaldo Soriano, who's an Argentinian author, uh, born in 1943. Uh, and he wrote a story that's actually quite g- germane to what's been going on recently called The Longest Penalty in the World, El Penal Mes Largo del Mundo which is a story about uh, an Argentinian, basically a pub league, effectively a, a, a sleepy kind of regional little league, uh, where the last game of the season, it comes down to two rivals, one of whom is historically thought of as a bit of a joke, and the other one is enormously successful at that level. And um, there's one point separating them at, on the final day of the season, and they meet. And the team in second place, Estrella Polar, all set to uh, win their first title, they're 2-1 up. Um, concede a penalty and if the penalty is scored then they will lose the championship because only a win will do and in a sort of twist that uh will be quite familiar to us because of what's been going on in Buenos Aires uh, the game has to be called off because as soon as the penalty is awarded riots break out um and the authorities rule that the penalty has got as well as the last 20 seconds of the match have got to be played out in full a week later Hence the name. It's the, the the longest penalty in the world. It's the longest penalty in the world ever to be taken. Um, I think what's interesting about stories like this, I mean, with with Borges as well as with Soriano, um, they're very prescient about phenomena in, in modern football. And to be clear, Soriano loved football. He was a fan of San Lorenzo. But both he and Borges actually maybe unexpectedly predicted how things would actually go in modern football. Um, so with Borges, he kind of anticipated the whole Milton Keynes Dons thing. Um, and with Soriano, this um, um, one of the things I think he anticipated was the rise of game theory uh, in deciding uh, in deciding football matches, deciding penalty shootouts. Because there's a conversation the day before the game, uh, before the uh, before the game resumes, sorry, before the penalty is taken, where the goalie says that he knows which side that the striker always kicks to, but now he knows that the striker knows that, so we should dive to the other side. But hey, now the striker's expecting him to dive to the other side, so he should dive to the original side, and so on. <laughs> and what Soriano has done there is posit a puzzle, I guess. it's a, um, I mean, he's capturing the fundamental psychology, first of all, of what it's like to take a penalty and face a penalty, and all that stuff that goes through your mind. Probably explains a lot why England are historically not very good at them. Um, but it posits this kind of puzzle. What happens if you know the striker's preferred side, and he knows that you know it too? And actually, these days, that's something that clubs spend a lot of time on. How do you solve that fundamental problem of what the opponent knows about you, what you know about him, and how do you use that to make your decision? Um, and I don't know if you've read the latest edition of Soconomics by Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski, Um, but there's a part where they mentioned the 2016 Champions League final, uh, which also went to penalties. And they talk about how Real Madrid had hired people uh, to figure out what Oblak's weakness was on penalties. And they found that Oblak had a tell where he'd always take a slight step to one side. And that would always be the direction that he dived in. Um, and they say, in no uncertain terms, game theory won the Champions League. Because Real Madrid knew something about Oblak that they didn't know that they knew, if that makes sense. And maybe Oblak didn't know that about himself. And so Soriano in the late 80s, when he writes the story, he posits this problem for football to solve. And about 30 years later, football has finally solved it. It boils down to knowing something about your opponent that he can't possibly know that you know or that he might not even know um, about himself. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting is that prescience, um, that football literature actually uh, is very good quite often at predicting problems and how they're going to be solved. Um, 
obviously, by the way, that's not the only echo uh, with the Libertadores thing that's been going on. And you could write a fictionalization of what's been going on in Libertadores and you could call that the longest final ever played rather than the longest penalty ever taken. Um, and when, the, you know, there are lots of parallels when the penalty is finally taken, um, it's behind closed doors, which isn't a million miles away from taking the Libertadores to Madrid. And to bring it back, I guess, to what we were saying before about football as, as a cultural phenomenon, it's probably no coincidence that a story like this about a game that's called off and the penalty has to be retaken a week later was written in Argentina. Um, I think the story, as I said, it was written in the 80s, probably shows us that the chaos over the final, the Libertadores final, probably has roots that go well back into the history of Argentinian football. This idea, this kind of absurd idea of a game being called off in violent circumstances has actually come true for us now. And we can see that there's an historical, cultural experience on the part of the author that suggests, well, actually, maybe this problem has really deep roots that we need to dig up. No, that's really interesting. Sounds like a piece to be written in that. I think there might be, yeah. I think there <laughs> might be. You, you, I think you might be saying that one quite soon, actually. <laughs> Let's move from talking about sort of the, the high culture element of football writing to talking about, I guess, what we would call the low culture element, regardless of what we think of high and low culture. And again, bring, bring you back to B.S. Johnson's novel, The Unfortunates. The whole of that, I don't know if you've experienced it before, the whole of that novel is, I mean, it, it's quite it's quite kooky anyway, because it's written in 25 little sections and you can mix it up each time you read it. But the the, the running theme is essentially he goes to, as a, as a football journalist, to a, a game in basically Nottingham, I think it is. And it ties ties up this experience of going back to this town that he hasn't been to since he was visiting his friend who eventually gets ill and dies. And he goes through this whole experience of memory that that is tied up with this place that he wasn't prepared to deal with because he was just going to watch a football match. And it's really interesting because it's sort of it's sort of you, you have one of the the little caches of books. One of the little booklets is all about his experience of just writing the match report, uh, which is this is really fascinating. And he's he's basically sort of saying, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a li- I'm a literary guy, I'm a novelist, and, and I'm doing this to to make a little bit of money. And and he talks his way through the experience of sort of whittling down everything that he's written to sort of five five hundred words that he's got to they've got to sum up well what's what's going on. And he has has like little word plays that he hides in there just to amuse himself and stuff. My point in mentioning that is that there's there's almost a an aspect of, of football writing, uh, particularly at that, at that at that sort of match reporting level, that doesn't really encourage the sorts of things that you might expect good literature to to involve. Right, taking your time, thinking through what's going on, writing about something that maybe has a little bit more depth to it than simply these two teams played against each other and some things happened. So I wondered how you would approach that in a literary sense. Someone who thinks a lot about the way that people write, the way that they write themselves. How do you then approach something like writing a match report where you almost, there's a section in, in, in the unfortunates where he, where he basically says, I'm not encouraged to think through what I'm writing. I'm just writing the first words that come into my head. So what would you, what would your thoughts on that be? I think we're all familiar with, um, the sense of, you know, or, um, sorry, we're all familiar with journalists on Twitter when their last minute goal is scored having to tear up their on the whistle match report because they've got to produce a whole new narrative and, that speaks, I think, to the fact that there is such an appetite for consumption that as soon as the final whistle goes, we want to read about it. And often that feeds a sense of journalists writing match reports. They need to have it out now. They need to just give us the bare bones, tell us what happened. 
um, it can often lead to, I think, some uh, quite shoddy writing. And I, I include myself in that. I've When I've had to write on the whistle match reports, I look back on some of the stuff I used to write and think, Christ, I can't believe I allowed myself to put that out. This, you know, it's, it's all paced wrong and the paragraphs are too big and so on. I think when you have the time to really consider it and when, when you, you know, you can take an evening to write up your full thoughts, a good match report will have a lot in common with literature and they should have some kind of narrative element. I think a good match report will have this kind of semi-autobiographical narrative. Maybe this almost a gonzo style, I guess you could call it. It won't just tell you, you know, what happened. You know, these two teams played each other. It should also tell you what it was like to be there. Um, how did the game pulsate and flow? What was the fundamental experience like? It will tell you why it all matters. And I think in that sense, it has to aim at people. A bit like, you know, with uh, books like Fever Pitch. Um, at people who have an emotional investment in it. Because you have a target audience who, all else being equal, they would have loved to be there. Or, in fact, maybe it's people that were there and they just want to relive it. And so I think the best match reports are ones that are quite experiential. I talk about the fundamental experience of what it was like to be there on that day. And I think there are plenty of great football writers that do that. I think Henry Winter is really good at that. Jonathan Wilson as well tends to write very thought-provoking, um, often quite uh, often post-day match reports where those kind of narrative elements do come to the fore. Match reports, I mean, one of the things that I found as a PhD student that does sports journalism is the sense of I'm writing a thesis, which is a a really um, involved intellectual pursuit. And then I also find myself writing an awful lot of match reports, which are very immediate. Um, And it's interesting sometimes how I sort of get them to coexist. Um, And I do get a sense of satisfaction from... Um, you know, going out and doing the legwork and uh, standing out in the rain on a pitch on a Wednesday afternoon, taking a fo- notes on a football match. And I like doing the miles in that respect. And I hope to actually get to do more of that one day. But I get more of a sense of accomplishment from stuff that isn't actually match reports. Um, even though there is an art to good match reports, um, I get more, much more of a sense of accomplishment from feeling like I'm contributing something that's unique to a discourse. You know, loads of people can go to a rugby match and report on that. Same with a football match. Some people do it phenomenally well. But what I prefer to do as um, uh, a sort of semi-academic, semi-journalist is to build on the kind of stuff that I've done in academia and produce a contribution that only I could have made. Um, because that gives you the feeling that you're contributing something unique, that actually there is a reason for people to listen to what you have to say, that people actually want to know what you think about this issue because it's something that you specifically know about that only you necessarily would have thought of. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think academia promises now and then. But I think sports journalism, for hopefully the, the future does hold sports journalism open as a career for me. I could see that actually being the place where I get most sense of satisfaction from. Which I think brings us quite nicely onto the final question about the future of the industry. Because obviously, at the moment, the industry is very much geared around writing match reports, going to games, and providing that immediate coverage of, of football. So I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how the future of the industry could go, how it might go, how you would like it to go, and how you'd see yourself fitting within that future. At the moment, people like me are still seen with a bit of suspicion um, in uh, the football media. Um, I remember the, the first time I walked into the office at the Times when I was there, the very first thing anyone asked me was whether I was the academically overqualified one they'd been hearing so much about. <laughs> and 
I was shocked by that. I would, I would never describe myself that way because I was, I was a young journalist taking a logical step up. Um, you know, going and getting really valuable experience. But what struck me was that they didn't know the first thing about me. They knew I was doing a PhD, but they didn't know that they didn't know the first thing about the journalism that I'd been doing. And I think a step that the sport media needs to take is to open itself out to the perspectives of, of people like you and me who've come from a different route and might have something different to say about it. And I think the sports media are going that way. And when we were talking about um, authors who were doing quite a lot of similar stuff, Sid Lowe and so on. There is definitely an appetite among people uh, to read that kind of stuff. And I think there are more platforms now to produce that kind of stuff. In general, one of the issues with football journalism at the moment, though, is that it's very, very saturated. So, I mean, you have thousands of people who all want to be involved in the sports media, huge numbers basically willing to work for free, you know, on the promise of exposure and all of that nonsense, you know, develop a profile. And basically that leads to a market where it's really, really hard to make a name for yourself to get your stuff noticed. Um, and in the age of social media, I mean, it's very hard for any of us to troll through and find stuff that's actually worth reading. So everything that you write, I find, has to have some kind of significance to it. It has to recommend itself to a reader. And I think you, you have to be able to show that your thoughts, specifically yours, are worth reading and that they're worth paying for. Um, and as we both know, that can, you know, that's easier said than done. Um, it's no coincidence, actually, that my first paid writing gig was that Blizzard article. That was the first time I'd ever earned any money from what I'd done. And, I think it was because it was the first time I'd ever done something that really only I could have done it. There was a, there was a reason to listen to what I had to say on that, on that issue. That doesn't, what I'm careful of is making myself sound like I think of myself as some kind of innovator. I don't see it like that. There was a platform that existed. Um, and in order for me to write the article, uh, and even get it out, that platform had to exist before me. And you have a publication in the blizzard that routinely looks at football through an intellectual and, should we say, maybe degree educated lens. Um, and so, the ground for me was was ready. It was, there was a readership. There was a platform for me to use. Um, and so I think the football media um, really are changing. There is a growing appetite to think of football in intellectual terms. And when I talk about um, using literature, I mean, literature is just one of the things that I do. Um, but when I use literature as a way of looking at football or I just draw on my educational background more generally to write about football, I'm not trying to say that I'm reinventing the wheel or that other stuff out there is rubbish or that only what I do is worth reading. I'm just saying that it's an opportunity for me to offer the uh, the media something that's uniquely mine and something that for that reason is worth reading and engaging with. But the groundwork's already been done and that's something I take no credit for. What I will say is that publications like The Blizzard and so on, they speak to this growing appetite among football fans to actually consider the game more deeply to think of it from, say, a literary perspective or an historical perspective, a sociological perspective. I think fans are really starting to understand football's significance in world uh, world culture. Um, And I think the football media really are catching up fast. Well, that's been such a fascinating conversation. Thanks very much for that. How can people follow you on social media? What's the best way of them going about doing that? Um, so if you want to follow me on uh, social media, best get me on Twitter. I'm on at Paul Highland 08. Highland is H-Y-L-A-N-D. Everyone thinks it's H-I-G-H. So Paul H-Y-L-A-N-D 08 on Twitter. You can get me there. Paul, thanks so much for coming on today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. You can tune in next week to hear Benjamin Roberts talk about football in Northern Ireland and the experience of writing a book. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye.